You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 33. Millennials, otherwise known as Gen Y, those technology natives, the generation born since 1980, the oldest of them have a stable footing within the grown-up world, and the youngest of them, ever-changing, ever-more connected, continue to flood into the workplace. So much is written and spoken about them. We stereotype wildly, aligning their lifelong relationship with devices and social media with attitudes and behaviour that are shaking the foundation of organisational norms. We philosophise and theorise about how best to manage them. But there is no conversation about millennials worth having that doesn't equally reflect on the habits and traits of the two other distinct generations that currently share the workplace. And that's what I really enjoyed about the conversation you're about to hear. Lee Carraher is an expert in managing millennials, and she's got a book to prove it. During our chat, we talk not just about millennials, their quirky characteristics and the features of society that shaped their formative years, but we also, as it must be, spend time talking about Gen X and the baby boomers, about their stereotype characteristics and how they play out in the workplace. Because a conversation about leading and managing millennials doesn't make any sense until you juxtapose their ways with the ways of their colleagues. You find so many moving parts when you begin to dig into the intergenerational dynamics of a workplace. Lee, representing the baby boomers, and I, a quintessential Gen Xer, do our best to tease out those moving parts. We work at establishing a distinct identity for each of the generations, the part they play in the office theatre. And then we explore some really simple and effective steps we can all take to ensure we play nicely together. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lee Carraher. Carraher, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I am so excited to be here, David. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming on. This is such an interesting topic. I'm really excited about talking to you because I've been looking forward to it for a while. We've had this conversation booked for a little while, and I just know that it's a topic that interests so many people. The title of your book is Millennials and and Management, but of course, it's not just about millennials, is it? It's about the interplay between the boomers and the Xs and the way millennials have fit into that dynamic. So that's how we're going to frame it today in our conversation. We're going to talk about those three generations and the characteristics of them and the way they interact. But first of all, Lee, I'd love to hear how you became interested in this intergenerational play because it's not your core competency. It's not what you studied at university or anything like that. How did you end up writing a book on this topic? Well, my core competency, if it was my university experience would be medieval history, which... Very handy. Yeah, I don't use it every day. Actually, I use <laughs> I use the study of it. I don't use the topic of it every day, that's for sure. You know, I became interested in this topic after failing miserably in my own company at working with young people. And this has not been my experience before. Before I started my company, I worked with a large... I had two really big-ass jobs. Excuse me. Sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> and... <laughs> and you know, and I had managed 600 to 750 people in those in the eight or nine years before I started my own company. And when I started my company in 2002, this was right after 9-11. And in San Francisco, it's where I am based. There were so many people out of work, frankly, in 2002, that I decided with my business partner, we would start a company that only employed people who had 10 years of experience or more. So by definition, they were 32 years old. They were Xers or boomers. 
And you had the luxury to do that because it was a it was a higher as market. Oh my gosh, totally higher as market, and it wasn't an issue in two thousand eight. And so the company did well. We moved. You know, we didn't really have a plan except to do good work because of why we started the company. It's a long. That's a long story. But in 2008, we were 18 people. We're doing great work. We had some awesome clients. And I, we were like, oh, this is going well. We won't have to change a thing. Well, September 15th, 2008, I started the day just thinking, you know, I might stop. I may work only four days a week. And I ended the day going, I will be freaking lucky to not lose at least a third of our revenue at eight days a week of work. <laughs> no, I mean, we that's, were watching, it's not funny. I shouldn't laugh. No, he should. Tell us ex- exactly what happened that day. Now, we know, in essence, what happened that day. In Australia, we felt it to a certain extent, but America was ground zero, I, I guess, of the economic meltdown. Absolutely. What was it like for you that day? I mean, it was, I truly came in that day ready to move my work around so I could work four days a week. Absolutely did. I, on the Sunday before the, the 14th, I literally spent three hours going, I'll move this work to that person, this, and I will have four days of work. I've worked hard. I can do this. And that's how I started my day, about ready to have meetings with people to say, you're going to take this responsibility and you'll get this raise. I mean, that's how I started my day. Then, you know, we're three hours behind New York. So New York started cratering. And, oh, my God, it was like watching an avalanche that you can't get out of the way from. As soon as we started seeing, you know, the 300 points, 400 points, 500 points, like, holy crap, what we're going to do. And obviously I stopped having those, I'm going to stop working moving <laughs> calls. <Right>. By about <laughs> midday. And truly by noon, by seven o'clock, when basically we averted, we averted total catastrophe, frankly, the United States did. I had figured out with my business partner and my CFO, just how we're going to buckle it down and what we were going to do. So. The next day was sort of a shell shock day. And I met with my senior team. I said, I think we're going to lose these four clients. I think these three clients will shrink, you know, uh, kind of stuff. And we need to buckle down. And uh, the third day, the Wednesday, I had a staff meeting and I said to everybody, okay, our life just radically shit. We're freezing salaries. My hope is that we can keep everybody. My expectation is that we're going to lose four clients. I'm driving every dollar that I can out of the business that doesn't impact your salary so that we can keep salaries because clawing back from a 10% or a 20% cut in salary takes forever and is really just hard, hard, hard. But if you are not easy to work with, you aren't going to stay here (laughs) because we have to be the easiest agency to work with now because everything just shifted. It came harder. Oh my God. Just it came so hard. And we had become, you know, we're really good at what we do. We'd become a little prima donna-ish. I think we were like, I don't want to work on that or I don't want to do this, you know? What a lovely position to be in. It's a lovely position to be in and something that we we are still, we're in that position as long as people don't want to make any more money, right? <laughs> so because of the stock market crash in 2008, mm-hmm. in one day you changed from thinking, oh, how good is life? Mm-hmm. I'm going to scale back my own work to four days a week to mm-hmm. thinking, oh my goodness, we need to rethink our entire model. And I I know where this is leading. Mm -hmm. You started by saying you wouldn't even hire Gen Xs, but by the end of that day, we need Gen Ys because they're cheap. Yeah. That was essentially the business model, right? Well, what we did was we had a very flat model, only people with so much experience. And I decided most agencies are a big pyramid model, which is a flawed model. Everybody knows it, but they can't get out of it because most agencies are held by publicly traded companies that need to get a certain percentage of profit to the street. So I was didn't want to move to a, a period model, and I figured out a square model, for lack of a better term, and which was have as equal a number of people above and below the line of eight or nine years of experience in our business, because that's really wow. a threshold in our business. Well, the fastest thing to do would be fire half the people and hire new ones. Well, I don't work that way. You know, I just don't. And, but we, our goal was to get to half and half, half and half. And it took about a year before we were able to hire our first millennial. I didn't know what they were called millennials then. And it was a shocking day for me. One, she's fantastic. Two, she brought her dog to work. And I, I didn't quite understand what this dog was doing at work. And I asked, did anyone, did she tell anybody she's brought the dog? (laughs) No. (laughs) 
Did she ask if she could bring the dog? No. Is anybody allergic to dogs? <laughs> we should find that out first, right? And uh, the dog had a red vest on, which in this country is the service dog. What had you know legally a service dog, which you cannot ask to leave your your business. But the dog was a Chihuahua, and in in my understanding of service dogs, this did not fit the model. Like I'm used to having labs. She was really pushing the limits there. I mean, eh? it was like this big. <laughs> so. And I didn't know what happened. I was like, oh, my God, what just happened here? And I got on the phone with my a colleague who ran another farm. And I said, this just happened. Not only did she bring her dog, she brought kibble dispenser, a water purifier, and a big bed for the dog. Oh, wow. Day one. And then she left that day, like at three or four o'clock. And I was like, where did the new girl with the dog go? And she <laughs> goes, oh, she had to go to San Diego and she won't be here tomorrow. I'm like, What? You know, wow. Did we know she was leaving at three o'clock? Did she ask if she could leave at three o'clock? So I called my friend and he said, I said, this has happened. What? I mean, is this normal? Because I hadn't had a young person under 33 or 34 in my company since 2002. So that was six years, right? Six, seven years, basically. 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. And, um, oh, Lee. Oh, my God. It's millennials. I'm like, what's a millennial? Didn't know. You are in for it. They're terrible. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're you're being dramatic, blah, blah, blah. And that sort of got me like set, sitting up a little bit. But she's awesome. I mean, her work was stellar. And I just worked with her and said, you really got to ask before you do stuff. Well, and then we fast forward another year, 2010, late 2010, we hired six millennials within eight weeks of each other. And within three months of the last one coming in, they were all gone. So I had a hundred percent failure with Gen X or Gen Y, sorry, millennials in that period. And I, in my career, have never had a hundred percent failure in recruiting. I was actually, I'm known for recruiting well in my previous world, right? People wanted to work for me. And here after three months, they had all, they were all gone. And, you know, one person could be a bad hire, but six people cannot be bad hire, right? Six people had to be us. And I started reading it on the topic and it was all so negative. It was all a lot of bitter boomer. I'm a boomer. I'm the last year of boomers. A lot of bitter boomers and Gen Xers just whining and complaining about millennials and a lot of millennials just harboring a lot of resentment towards boomers and Gen Xers. And I decided that I was not going to buy into the negative because I'm not a negative person. (laughs) I had years to go in my career. I can't be negative about the people who are going to be the future of my agency. So we went about it. We went back to basics and I interviewed, this is, I didn't, wasn't even going to write a book. I interviewed about a hundred millennials. Yeah. About a hundred millennials just to find out what they were thinking and all this kind of stuff and built a model about how to work, how to create positive intergenerational teams for my agency. And then by, and then fast forward another year, and I was talking to my now publisher about this for some a different reason entirely. And she goes, I will publish that book. And I was like, what book are you talking about? <laughs> that book, <laughs> book about millennials. I'm like, I don't have a book, but you can figure it out, Lee. I'll publish that book. And so that's how the book came along, because mostly because of the experience we'd had on fixing ourselves. And it's, you know, my the book is very practical with a lot of examples and all that kind of stuff. So people can figure out how to do things. But in the end, it's all about creating something positive intergenerational work teams because first of all three generations at work we're going to have that for the next 15 years minimum yeah minimum and the generations are very different in the way they work and if if you don't have a millennial in your business you don't have a future in your business so if you get wrap your head around those three facts then figuring out how to create that positive team becomes a a strategy, a business strategy that is the highest priority in terms of getting to profitability fastest. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient, and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. So coincidentally, the, the stock crash of 2008 was not only the event that led you towards hiring millennials for the first time, mm-hmm. it was, it's also affecting how long boomers and exes are going mm-hmm. to stay in the workforce. So that it has a, a kind of a, it's a very much a two-way street or a, a very much a tangled mm-hmm. web there. And that's interesting in itself. But 
Let's start. Well, we, we're not going to start. We've well and truly started. <laughs> How about at this point, we define what we're talking about because sure. you've already used those two words that we seem to equally use for millennials, the, the wires or the millennials. Yeah. They're the same, they're the same people. Mm-hmm. When are they born? So Gen Y millennials are born, they're different definitions. I use Pew Research as sort of my touchstone on this. And mm-hmm. they define millennials as born in 1980 to the 2000. So this year, 2016, they are 16 to 36 years old. And then right. Gen Y, which is the next group, is this year 37 to 51. And then boomers are 52 to 69. And then actually there are people who are the silent generation or traditional generation, and they are 71-ish to 85. In this country, at least, there are a lot of people who are over 70 working and who anticipate they have to work for at least five or six more years. No one I know, and I know a lot of people now because I've interviewed a lot of people. I've spoken on this topic a lot. I train on this topic now. There are very few people who expect to retire before 70 now. Yeah. Just because of the the need, A, people are living longer, and B, the cost of living longer is huge. And in 2008, boomers, Xers lost so much money in their savings that clawing back from that is taking a long time. So you identify as a boomer. You're on the mm-hmm. very cusp of boomers yeah. and Xers. I am very much not in the middle of an X, but I'm, I'm, I'm not near the cusp of an X. So I identify very strongly with that generation. Mm-hmm. Now, when you first started your business, you and your business partner swore that you would not hire even any Gen Xs. So you wouldn't have hired me. Yeah. You'd had bad experiences <laughs> in the past. I'm really yeah. interested. You ride on the cusp of boomer Xer, but you already had developed this prejudice against exes in your yeah. career. Tell us a little more about that. What, what's the well, features know, of exes? Right. Well, in this country, and it's true in most English-speaking countries, Gen X is much smaller generation than boomers or exers, than Ys. I'm sorry. Right. Gen Y is much smaller than Gen X or... No, no. No, Gen X is much smaller than Gen Y or boomers. No. Gen X, Gen XY. You're right. Sorry. I'm getting all confused. <laughs> Gen Y equals millennials. So millennials yes. and boomers are about the same size. Yes. In this country, about 80 million. Yep. One or two million more for millenni- millennials than boomers. And then right. Gen X is about 42 million people in this country. So almost half, right? Yeah. And these yeah. are the people who The dimensions were... in Australia are very similar, by the way. Yeah, so very similar. On a much smaller yeah. scale, but the, 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 same thing the, in the UK. proportion. The yep, same thing correct. in the UK, the same thing in Canada in terms of the, the scale. Proportion. Right? Yep. The proportion, right. So Gen Xers are many more single children than children with siblings. Right. Many more, we call them latchkey kids, kids who had dual income parents and they went home by themselves and they let themselves into their house and by themselves, they were at home by themselves until 6.30 at night, that kind of thing. And very much more independent and individual contributors than either the boomers or the millennials. That's so interesting. I, I love the way that those features, that, that exes, people like me, people at my age were perhaps the first generation where most of us had two parents who worked mm-hmm. and therefore went home after school to an empty house and took care mm-hmm. of ourselves until five or six o'clock mm-hmm. at night. I love the way that that then plays out in their personality and the generational characteristics right through their careers. And Absolutely. it's the same for the wise. We'll talk later mm-hmm. about what those features are in the way the yeah. wise grew up and how that's affected them. But I love that concept. And, you know, in your book, you talk about the fact that Gen Xs, as far as research tells us, so me, people in between boomers and millennials mm-hmm. are the most demanding in a mm-hmm. workplace. They're more demanding than a millennial. They're yes. more likely to ask for a pay rise or a bonus mm-hmm. or different types of work. As you said, they're more likely to be that ruggedly individual characteristic mm-hmm. where they, they prefer to work alone and they want a pay set for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm taking over a little bit. I apologize, but it's it's so interesting the way yeah. That we grow up and the the patterns of society at that time then go on to affect the way we work mm-hmm. for the rest of our lives. Tell us yeah. some more about that. Well, I think the other thing about Gen Xers is, you know, when Gen Xers, when your generation was coming into the workforce, really around 1996, 7, 8, 9, 10, somewhere, you know, 2000, if you had a pulse, you were getting a job at that age, frankly, right. all around the world. I mean, the economy was doing so well all around the world. 
if you had a pulse, you're getting a job, right? You, there weren't enough Gen Xers for the work that was available, particularly in companies like with pyramids that really get the profit off the bottom, you know, the entry level. And then 9-11 happened and the economy imploded, right? Particularly here, definitely, I mean, all over the world, but definitely here, the economy imploded and Gen Xers and boomers lost their jobs, right? So right when they're starting their careers, 24, 25, 26, Gen Xers lose their jobs or the economy shrinks. And so there's not as much opportunity for growth right when they're starting their careers. Then you wait, you know, 2005, 2004, 5, 6, things start coming back. And there's been four, three or four years. So now they're 30 years old and they're making what they thought they would make at 25. Right. Then you go forward to 2008. Now they're 30 to 35 years old, somewhere in there. And the economy tanks again. And it tanks even worse this time. It tanks, you know, all over the country and all over the world, right? And, and I'll give you an example. In San Francisco Bay Area, in the year 2000 to 2002, 80,000 professionals left San Francisco Bay Area. There was no work for them. But there was work. Exodus. Exodus. Mass exodus. But there was work other places in the country for them. Right. In 2008, till just about now, no one's left. There is nowhere to go. Like, where would you go for a job between 2008 and 2014? Almost nowhere, unless you're really, you know, so specialized that you can move around. So what happens in 2008 is another compression. Not only is there a compression of the workforce, there's, you know, people losing their jobs left and right. And then there's a contraction of salaries right when these people are hitting the prime. Like, you know, if you're a high performer, man, this is where you can really start escalating your your career and escalating your earning potential. Totally put the kibosh on that. At the same time, as boomers who expect to be able to retire have lost 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of their retirement funds in 2008, 2009. And I mean, hundreds of thousands of people thought they were going to retire in 2008 who are just now retiring. So eight years later, finally, these people are getting out of the job market. So the opportunity that Gen Xers should have anticipated because there are fewer of you is just now, as they're hitting their late 40s and early 50s, coming online, where they should have, they would have expected it almost a decade ago. Such an interesting story for the exes, isn't it? Their it really is. They got been, screwed. They, they've been screwed. <laughs> Twice. Their careers have been interrupted by some significant mm-hmm. downturns, which not only affected their own jobs, but it affected the jobs of the boomers who sit before them in organizations in higher positions. So exactly. if you expected that maybe by now you'd be a VP, but old VP in the corner office is hanging on for another five years mm-hmm. because he lost 40% of his retirement fund yep. in 2008. So you're going to have to wait another few years for that corner office. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, while your career is stalling, Tsunami. Yeah. you've got the generation Y coming behind you, the millennials, yeah. who come in with all their characteristics of thinking mm-hmm. that they they should have access to everyone in the organization and that mm-hmm. information should be completely transparent and ready to go. Exactly. And, and I, I should be judged on my merit and look how fabulous I am. The exes are stuck in the middle of all totally. of that. It's a fascinating position for them to be in. Yeah. I think we basically, as the tsunami of millennials start gen, you know, coming into the workforce was really right around 2009. Right. So just the wrong time. Just yeah. the wrong yeah. time. Wrong, wrong and, time for people like me. You know, just the wrong time for everybody, really. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of boomers who are still not, who got displaced in 2008, who are still not working in this country. And, and some of it's because they weren't willing to compromise on the title or the, or the salary. But- most of it's because those jobs just got eliminated, right? So you have the tsunami of millennials coming into the workplace who are now graduating in this country with massive loads of debt from university that they did not anticipate because their boomer parents thought they'd be able to pay for it right. before they lost their savings in 2008, 2009. So all of these things together just create a lot of people who are not living the world, the lives that they anticipated. Yeah. And- that we hear a lot about it in today's political world we're going through in this country for the you know the presidential election and you know the world has changed 
And we all have to move towards what the world's going to look like, not how it was. Um, And so the lesson I always tell people is when your economy changes, so either your business changes or the your the state, the region that you're in changes or the country changes, you need to absolutely examine your business model because it will not be the same. Success will not come the same way after the whatever the right sizing is from that economic implosion on a small or a macro level. And a lot of people unwilling to look at their business model and shift it towards what the reality is towards the future. And that's really where I find where the most tension is in work teams because they're living, you know, they're just disappointed in the in the, the reality. And if you can sort of adjust it and say, okay, here's where we are, let's move forward, all of a reality. sudden it becomes much easier. Yeah, and that, that disappointment you talk about. It's a hard of, thing. Of course, is boomers disappointed that they're still working at all? Mm-hmm. X is disappointed that the boomers are working and therefore mm-hmm. they're a rung or two lower on the ladder than they otherwise would have been. And Y is disappointed that the world wasn't what they thought it would be, the way yeah. they were brought up to think of it. Hey, before we move off the X's, we talked about how badly screwed they've been. <laughs> how does that play out in their characteristics at work? We've touched on it a little bit. T- tell us a little bit more about if you were to stereotype the X's as a teammate or a colleague at work, what are they like? You know, I find that you know, we have a lot of extras in my company and where we really focus is on in the team, who's got what role. And if you can define roles for everybody and understand interdependencies, then what I find in my experience is that the extras go off and do it and they're done. <laughs> right? Right. And there's not, they don't need a whole lot of input. Okay. They don't need a whole lot of feedback. They're, you know, they just go and they figure it out themselves. This is very different from millennials. Yeah, and we'll get to that. And that's a fascinating part of the story. Hey, but let's talk about boomers first. The, sure. The group that you identify with, but uh, there's a lot of boomers who, who are much older than you, though. So yes. it's such a, it's a really large group. You're right on the cusp of the boomers and the Xs. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the fact that a lot of boomers are working when they didn't expect still to be working. A lot, a lot yeah. of boomers worked through their career when times were pretty good and they were eyeing mm-hmm. off retirement of ages of 60 or even lower. Thinking mm-hmm. about the good times, they were planning on paying for weddings and colleges, college mm-hmm. for their kids, and things changed significantly for them as well. What are the characteristics of the boomers in the workforce? Well, I think, I mean, like you said, the boomer range is, is like the millennial range, very large, you know, 17, 18 years in there. And the older boomers, you know, older men boomers who are not at the highest rank, right, or sort of the middle management rank. You know, they're having a hard, hard time. There are not as many, you know, you could find people who are much cheaper and who know technology much better and are innate in the value of there's a ton of ageism that's going on against particularly boomer men all across the, our country. So just for our listeners, the oldest boomers would be turning 70 this year. So that's as old as boomers get. Youngest boomers are turning 52, 52. this year. Yeah. So... The tremendous amount of ageism going on, particularly for men, and men in general, my experience has been the older men, they're just not as flexible on their definition right. of what work should look like. Sure. Uh, women who work, you know, they're just much, my experience on that is just more practical. All right, I don't care about the title. Am I putting food on the table? You know, they baby needs a new pair of shoes. You know, they just find, figure stuff out. And I think the boomers, there is a, uh, you know, boomers were the wait my turn generation. There's so many boomers. That's why it's called a boom that they knew that if they just waited their turn, they would level, up. elevate up and hierarchy yeah. really is the name of the game for that generation. Right. And that is really antithetical to the millennial experience, which is very flat. Yeah. So working your way up, waiting your time, just waiting it out before someone yeah moves along, you know, that was the the model. That was basically how people elevated themselves. And that is not what millennials expect. <laughs> and so that creates a tremendous amount of clash between those two generations, for sure. That's really interesting. And, and between those two generations, you talk about the opportunity for Gen Xs, and I don't want to go back to Gen Xs, but for mm-hmm. them to either sit in the middle and be bitter about the way that they've mm-hmm. been screwed, as we decided before, or play an active role as the bridge mm-hmm. between the millennials and the boomers. That's a, a mm-hmm. really interesting position for them to be in. All mm-hmm. right, well, let's talk about the millennials, the Gen mm-hmm. Yers. They're a fascinating group. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it's nothing new that we're perplexed by the generation that comes mm-hmm. after us. That's been going on through the millennia, mm-hmm. <laughs> through the millennia. Mm-hmm. We've always been perplexed by the next generation. So is this generation any more perplexing or is it just that it happens to be now and, and this is the topic of conversation? I think it's, it's just now. I mean, yeah. I have, like I said, I have a degree from medieval history. Medieval history is 2,000 years of intergenerational conflict. Sure. And, you know, so it's nothing new. I start my book with a, with a quote from Socrates. I mean, that was 400 BC. So this is nothing new. I think what's different is that a few things. One is it's us, right? And there's yeah. so many more ways to talk about it. Before you would yeah. complain at the water cooler and no one yeah. would hear you. Today you complain online and everybody hears you, you yeah. know? And, yeah. So it's the echo chamber is real and alive, you know, number one. And number two, I think the difference is we're all together. We have three generations just sitting right next to each other today in today's world. Is that unique in, in history, in, in a workplace? I mean, I think if you think about hierarchy, you know. They would be so separated. Very separated. Who has an office? Who has a cube? Who is right. in the pool? Yeah. Who doesn't, you know, who's roving around? Who's got the corner? All that kind of stuff. Those things yeah. really don't matter as much at all, at all, in most industries. I mean, there's still some laggards, you know. Yeah. But in general, where you sit, I was just at, you know, a huge, I mean, just a billion, billion, I don't know, it was probably a $6 billion company. The CFO sits in a cube. Yeah. That never would have happened before, yeah. right? <laughs> so not only do we have these three generations meeting each other at work, which is pretty unique mm-hmm. because the boomers are hanging mm-hmm. around longer. We also yep. have a more egalitarian setup in a lot setup. of workplaces where the CEO is not hidden away on the 58th no. floor and you see him once a year. We've got CEOs sitting in cubicles amongst everybody. So, yeah. so for the first time, everybody at every level in some organizations, has yeah. access to everybody else. Everybody else. And I think the other piece of that, too, is, you know, the last 20 years, basically, of work dialogue was all about work-life balance. You know, work-life balance. And we had this concept of there was work and there was life. And those two things were separated. Technology has totally changed that. You know, our 24-7 world has, you know, there is this intermingling of work and life all day long, you know. and so the particularly the boomers who, you know, and predict, it was really boomer women who really worked on this. Right. It's boomer women who are women going back to the workplace, talking about work life balance, talking about, you know, how to do it all, fry it up in a pan, all kind of stuff, which, frankly, I don't believe. I don't know. I mean, my mother was such a pioneer in her generation. And I just don't know how you do everything at the same time. Men didn't do it. I don't know why women, why women why think women they should, should be able to, to do it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, work-life balance was the theme and it's still a theme, right? So it is not rocket science to figure out that millennials have all heard their parents talk about work-life balance their whole lives, would want it. And the there's a lot of tension between the people who created the opportunity for work-life balance and the people who expect it because their parents have told them to right. day one, right? right. There's, there's a lot of tension on that. And particularly, I find this for boomer women more than boomer men, particularly women who have been working for, you know, their whole lives, their whole adult lives. It's like, man, I worked really hard to be able to leave at five o'clock. I worked really hard to go to this ballet lesson in the middle of the day. How come this person gets to go when I did? Day one. And I just say to them, you just gotta get over it. I mean, you just, this is the new reality. The job of a pioneer is to make it better for the people behind you. The difference is we can see them. And, you know, pioneers before, you know, our our idea of the pioneer in this country is people who got on covered wagons and came across the continental divide. You couldn't see the people behind you. Well, they're sitting right next to me now. (laughs) It is a strange take, though. I work so hard to pave this way for work-life balance and he's getting it so easily. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't it great that they can come straight into the workplace and already feel a sense of work-life balance? I I think that is I think if all those other dynamics we hadn't talked about in terms of their disappointment in not being able to retire when they thought, in the fact that they have to work because of their economic situation, if those things didn't exist, I think everyone would be a little happier about it. But I think because it's nothing's easy, there's a lot of onion to peel to get yeah. to the core. These issues are not single layered. So 
obviously, to state the obvious, millennials are wires, they're technology natives. You know, mm-hmm. you and I have picked it up. It's part of our life as much as it is anyone else. But these are truly the first people for whom technology has been part of their lives. I mean, for me, when I went to university, computers were there, but you had to go sort of to the library to use them. Right. And I still use books. And it sounds crazy, but that's the way it was, even for yeah. me. So the people who have come after us and known nothing other than being able to Google anything that you want to know, being able to connect with your friends and your family and your colleagues in multiple ways instantly, Mm -hmm. you see this quite obviously as one of the core differences between millennials and the uh, who are the wise (laughs) generation Y and millennial and everybody else. So tell us Mm -hmm. more about the way that that plays out in their personality Mm -hmm. at work. So a few things on that. One is, you know, millennials have grown up one click away from anybody in the world, any email in the world. See, you know, they know how to find any, inf- they think they have any information in the world. One click away from any information, one click away from any person, and one tweet away from changing, you know, making JetBlue go back to the, you know, an airline go back to the concourse because they're sitting on the tarmac too long. They've had the power of access in their hands almost their whole lives. And for older people, access was something you earned over time. It was not something that just came to you, right? Information used to be hard to get. Well, today, a millennial probably knows more about your company than you do, you know, truly. Because they're, you know, they just have all that information. They have all that access at their fingertips. So what happens in the workplace, I think, is two things. One is the expectation that that access that is that technology provides is actually systematic or systemic to an organization. So I can go right into the CEO's office that day or Cube or whatever it is and say, hey, how's it going? What do you think about my future? And the CEO's going, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> why are you in you know, my office? Why are you here? You know, and it's not because they don't want it. It's just like, whoa. Yeah, because there's probably a boomer sitting in there thinking, exactly. hey, I had to wait 20 years before yeah, I got to meet the CEO. Right? And this idea of, uh, like I said, hierarchy and layers is very antithetical. Like, why do I have, I see him. Can't I just go ask him the question? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I operate very much that way. I'm like, sit right here, guys. Just ask me the question. I'm very comfortable in that. So that's one thing. Second thing on technology is one thing I really find a lot for boomers versus millennials, um, not so much for Gen um, Xers, but you know, we use the word draft in our business. We're a PR firm here. So we rewrite a lot of stuff. Send me a draft. And send me a draft can mean either print it out on a piece of paper and put it on my desk and I will write on it or send me a clean word version that I will put into track changes. But I get often, right, is they send me a Google link wow. with a Google Doc that has yeah. lots of different colors on it and comments from all these different people. Yeah. And we have to train people backwards on technology because, yeah. you know, most companies, if you've been around for five years or more, you have legacy systems that these people have not used in college, right? Yeah. My son just graduated from high school. He didn't have to print anything out the last two years of high school. So what? Like, how could you not have to print anything out? <laughs> so, you know, they're not used to printing things out. They're used to the collaboration of Google and the cloud that allows lots of people to comment. Version control is crazy, right, in a group. And they're used to crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing is normal. Crowdsourcing is not normal for boomers and for Xers, particularly for Xers who are individual by nature in general. And these are big generalities, you know, but you know what I'm saying. So, you know, you could say draft. And for me, what draft means is it is as ready as you can make it. For most millennials, draft is here's a good idea. Yeah. Here's a series of links that you might want to follow and and learn a, a few things. And, you know, all you want to do is slit your wrists when you you see this. And it's not because they're rude. It's not because they're just, you know, that they're stupid. It's not because they're ignorant. And we use ignorant in this country as a very pejorative word, very Mm. subjective. It's because they don't know, because that's not the way they've learned. That's not the way that they've practiced working. So you have to, when people, when new people out of college start, You got to like say, here's how we do things here. Please don't send me a Google link. Yeah. Please send me a Word document. Don't send me a PDF, whatever it is, whatever those things are. Or when is it appropriate to use a Google link and when it's not? Or when is it appropriate? You know, if you're going to send me research, I don't want 15 links. I need you to read it. I need you to synthesize it. Need you give me an opinion. And then I need to do some backup. Not 
just links. Let me know how what you, if you need anything else. And it's not because they're lazy. It's because that's how they worked. I read in your book, some of the people you spoke to talked about the characteristics at work that are a result of the technology mm-hmm. in their lives is that they have trouble getting started on stuff. They're not self-motivated yeah. and right. they have trouble finishing. They, they don't take pride in their work were the words that someone used. But of course, mm-hmm. that's through the eyes of a boomer or an exer. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure they do take pride in their work in their own way. But yeah. through the eyes of a boomer and an exer, they have trouble getting started and they don't finish properly. They're, they're unlikely yeah. to dot their I's and cross their T's. Cross their T's. And I think the getting started piece is they don't want to be wrong. My experience is that they don't want to be wrong. They want to get started right. And they want a lot of input. They don't want to be told what to, how to do things, but they want a lot of input on what it should look like. Right. right. And they don't want to be wrong. Being wrong is really hard because, and I think it's based on two things. One is everybody wins soccer or you would make, call it football there. Right. Everybody wins soccer in this country from in the last 15 years. People don't keep score. Yeah, you don't keep in, score, right. They don't keep score. Well, the yeah. kids keep score. The yeah. parents don't keep score. Yeah. You know, whatever. And it's great. I think everyone wins soccer is fantastic until you're in second grade. But after that, someone's got to win. But here, you know, you get awards and trophies and stickers all the way through college just for showing up. We call yeah. them participation awards here. Yeah. I think they're terrible. I think yeah. what that does is say, participation is what matters and the outcome isn't what matters. And so if you're not an elite athlete or an elite uh, musician or a spelling bee queen or a video game god, you know, you don't know what it is to win, really win something or work to win, right? And that's most people aren't elite, right? That's just the deal. So that creates a false expectation in the workplace. This is what we find a lot. Here's my work. It's not really done. It is done. It's great. It's not really done. But I've been told I'm great all my life. I've been told I'm great. And I, I want a sticker for this. Yeah. Well, the other piece of that in this country, the average grade point average in colleges and high schools has risen a full point over the last 15 years. So as millennials, so they're 35 this year. So when they were 20, right? So the last 15 years, the average grade point average has risen a full point. So on a 4.0 scale, I don't know if you use the same thing in Australia, but on the 4.0 scale, yeah. You can get a 5.0. You can get a full point higher than the highest ranking. Wow. I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. Well, and then there are some institutions. 4.0 out of 4.0 is not good enough anymore. Correct. And so there are some institutions now, some really high-ranking institutions like UC Berkeley, or you might call it Cal, who publish the scale or they publish the curve for every single grade on a transcript. Because some of these kids at these elite institutions that didn't allow things to go over 4.0 are losing out jobs to people from institutions where they did allow grades to go over 4.0. So there's just all these false expectations that have been created by these things like participation trophies and grade point averages growing up so that when they get into the workplace, they are used to having lots of awesome feedback. You're doing great. That's an A minus. Really yeah. was a B minus. Yeah. But we're going to call it an A minus. Yeah. And then you are stuck as the manager or the leader or whoever saying it isn't good enough. And how could it not be good enough? I'm an A plus student. Well, really, you're a B plus student, you know, or whatever, right? And that tension is tremendous, particularly for the first two years of a person's career. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. You raise a really good point about it. You've gone outside of the technology. So some of the Mm -hmm. characteristics of millennials are about the fact that they're technology natives. We've talked about that, but it's not just that, is it? As you talked Mm -mm. about, it's that trophy generation where everyone gets a trophy and there's some other really interesting quirks of that generation too, which you see play out. I, I read in your book, and I, I, of course, knew this intuitively, but hadn't really thought about it explicitly. They're the first generation of kids who have grown up calling their parents' friends by their first yeah. names yeah. and their friends' parents by their first name. Of course, you and I would have called Mr. and Mrs. Smith or Mr. Yeah. and Mrs. Jones, but my kids will grow up and kids who are 20 or so now, the millennials now, they grew up calling their parents friends Bob and Judy and Bill. Yeah. 
and that seems minor, but of course it has a fairly large effect on the way that you see the world. As, mm-hmm. as we've talked about again, you see it as a flat world. Very Everybody flat. is is equal. Yeah. And, and I, I sort of reached the conclusion that that's not a bad thing. No. Of course it's very different. And the boomers and the Xs who have had to earn their status mm-hmm. and their right to talk to per- certain people might bemoan that. But for for the world, it's actually a really positive thing, I think. I agree entirely. I think that the the concept of respect is something you can respect someone outside of your norm, right? Just because you don't, it's sort of like when you think about cultural issues, meaning like I worked for a Japanese company for five years and before we were allowed to go to Japan, we had to go through, you know, Japanese culture training. So we knew how not to offend people just by being ourselves, not because we wanted to offend them, just because we didn't wash our hands enough, or we didn't bow correctly, or we used our cards the wrong way, or we ate food at a different time, or whatever it was, right? Well, the same kind of, you don't intend to be rude. I don't think people intend to be rude or intend to be what other people would call disrespectful. I think they just don't know what the norm is, because if their parents said, call me Bob, right? And they go in the work, and there's someone who looks like their parent, I'll call you Joe. Yeah. Well, Mr. Smith doesn't like that. Yeah. Right. Don't call me Joe. Right. Yeah. And then what happens in email too? I was just, I just got an email from a young man who graduated from college and he wants some help, informational interview stuff. And it was so casual and there was a lot of typos in the email and he gave me, he attached his resume and it was, it was a disaster. And I, I have decided in my life, you know, before I, I wouldn't ever correct people. I would just ignore that. And then I've decided that, the best gift I can give to people is to tell them how they can succeed. Yeah. I may never hire them. I probably won't yeah. <laughs> hire this guy. <laughs> but uh, the best thing I can do is say, let me tell you how the next time you send an email, yeah. how you have a better chance of succeeding. And I did. I spent 20 minutes. Well, I don't have 20 minutes, but I spent 20 minutes saying, here's how you would have a better chance of getting my attention. Please don't say, hey, Lee. Yeah. I've never met you. Yeah, this is how you came across to me. Yeah, so I did. I went through the whole thing and I gave him examples of here's how you might do it and all this kind of stuff. And the person who connected us together, I sent him the same email. I said, just so you know, this is what I sent to the person that you recommended. I hope this doesn't create a problem for you. But, you know, he will not get anywhere in this industry unless he does these three things, blah, blah, blah. And the person, you know, the person that we both know, you know, is mortified, of course. And I said, don't be mortified. This happens every day. I mean, this happens. I do this once a week, you know, so it's not because they're ignorant. It's because no one bothered to tell them. And I think what that is a big mistake. Boomers don't want to be bad people. I mean, we grew up in a huge generation ourselves and, you know, being nice and being forward and being able to get along with people, you know, sort of moved us forward. Uh, millennials don't want to be wrong. And if you let them be wrong, like being rude, it's, I hate to say that being rude, like let them be wrong by saying you need, you know, let them be casual in an email situation, which should be very formal and you don't correct them. Well, when you actually find the time to correct them three or four months down the line, that's when they will jump ship on you because you let that person be wrong for four months. You let that yeah. person. You've made a fool of me. Made a fool of me. You've mm. been thinking for four months that I was an idiot. How could yeah. you not correct me? I want that feedback. And millennials want a lot more feedback than boomers or Xers. <laughs> a lot more. So millennials very sensitive, very in touch with their emotions and what a boomer might consider soft. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of boomers do think they're soft, but I don't think millennials are soft. I think they are, they're pragmatic, right? Like, just tell me, Right. You know, I think millennials are sometimes called the me generation, which I, I find is 100% not my experience. My experience is that millennials are a we generation. And the fastest way to put a millennial in the corner, in the fetal position, is not by saying you did a bad job, you didn't live up to your potential, which might influence a Gen Xer. Right. But is to say, you did a bad job, you let the team down, and everybody really? else had to pick up your slack. Wow. And you watch the face just drop and the quiver. And and in my experience, it never happens again. Wow. So they're really good team players. Hey, that's really interesting. We touched on that before, but you've Mm -hmm. highlighted that. All right. So what can each of these three 
headline generations that we've spoken about today do differently in, in, in a workplace setting to play more nicely with the other generations? Yeah. What could each of these three groups do differently? Yeah. So I think the first thing is to understand that if you can help millennials thrive, everybody benefits, right? There's nothing you'll do for a millennial to help them thrive and achieve that will not help boomers and Xers. So that's my first definitive thing. So if you're, you're helping a millennial thrive in turn, you will help you're yourself. helping the rest of the workplace. You're helping the, rest the Xers of the workplace. and the boomers that are there with them. Yeah. Let them thrive. Let them thrive. And what thriving means is they, uh, millennials want work that matters, right? Right. And they want work that matters. And sometimes they're not explained, I'm an entry-level job, I'm the bottom layer, my work doesn't matter. We need to take the time at the beginning of any engagement to explain, one, what your role is and what everybody else's role is, how my work impacts other people's work, right? Because there is no job that people get that doesn't have to get done. But we don't necessarily take the time to explain, yes, you're entry level, but your work is vital to the team. And if you don't get your work done, the team doesn't achieve its goal. And if the team doesn't achieve its goal, the company will not achieve its goal. So really explaining the context of what the work is and my role in that work and then how it's all interdependent. So taking that half an hour hour at the beginning of a project to explain context and roles and who's doing what and why it all matters is vital for a millennial and for everybody else. Who doesn't do a better job when they know what their work is? Exactly. Everybody does a better job. Everybody How their does efforts a better job. contribute to the whole, yeah. of course. But so you're saying for, that's always important. That's a, that's a fundamental of teamwork. But for millennials, that's super important. They're really it's sensitive fundamental. to that. Fundamental. Right. And to reset, right? What is, um, a lot of times you just add another person to the team and you don't reset. Well, if you add a person to the team, obviously the team has changed. Yep. So every time you add a person to the team, chain, you know, you have to take a moment and say, okay, we added Joe. Joe's responsibility is X, Y, Z. So what, how does that impact Lee? Well, that means Lee is going to do X, Y, you know, A, B, C, and, you know, just take a moment to reset. So everyone understands what just happened when a change happens, right? That's number one. So context and role definition, really important for everybody, right? The other piece, I think, is setting up, asking for feedback always. Millennials want to make a difference day one. They, you know, I'm here to make a difference. I only want work where I matter and I can be a part of the team. It's sort of like being on a, a rowing team, right? If the one person in the middle doesn't row, the boat goes around in a circle, right? They're used to having an equal weight in the rowing. And so when you're thinking about that, it's what can I do to make sure that the skill set is there and all that kind of thing, right? Does that make sense? so that everybody is clear on that. And what is the opportunity for growth there? The other piece of that is for the feedback mechanism is to not allow constant feedback to be required. And how that really helps is, okay, the project is due on Thursday, next Thursday, we're in a week. So it's due here. Now we're going to set up a, we're going to have a check-in. We're going to have a check-in in a day to make sure we're good. We're going to have a check-in in three days. We're going to put some more time in and a check-in the day before. We're not going to have a check-in all every single day. Are you saying that because if you don't put in those guidelines, millennials will tend to want to be checked in on all the time? The they want to be talking about this constantly with you. Yes. And that's also the crowdsourcing concept for them is constant. It's a constant crowdsourcing. That's not very efficient in the workplace. So establishing a check-in schedule is vital for efficiency and also making sure everyone is on the right path, right? And as people, that's really important. I think something to think about is the difference. In, do you play video games, David? No, I don't. So, okay, well, okay. Video games used to come on, used to come on cartridges, right? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I do. And they were perfect. When they shipped a video game, it was perfect. Today, most games are played on something like this, a phone, yeah. and you get an update every Tuesday. Your phone like downloads all the updates, right? And the right. game is getting improved all the time. Yeah, it's very static in the cartridge, isn't it? Yeah, very static. The static world doesn't exist anymore, right? right? So this constant, and millennials are used to contributing to the quality of a product all the time, that their right. feedback will matter to a product. And that, that dynamic 
and their concept is that that should be the same concept in work. Of course, ah. I'm going to give feedback and it's going to be accepted and the product will improve. So we just have to think about all these things together. So if you ask for feedback always, it doesn't mean you have to take it. I believe that businesses should be high input, low democracy. You take, ask for feedback, all that kind of stuff, right? And the fourth thing is to say to millennials, and this is for true for everybody, I know you have a lot of ideas. I know you can improve my work. I already know that you can do that. You ha- you're going to have so many ideas on how to streamline the work and what hacks we can use. My request for you is to do it my way first, and then we'll meet, and you can tell me how we can improve it. But if you just come in day one and say, I have a lot of ideas, I'm not going to do it this way, all you're doing is putting everyone else's back up and saying, you're not going to honor all the work I've done to create this process. Well, there's a reason we do this this way, right? So if you say to anybody on your team, please do it my way first, and then we'll improve it. That says to the person, one, I'm going to have an opportunity to input. I'm going to have an opportunity to improve. And then at the same time is honoring the person who is assigning the work. Geez, that's a great piece of advice, Lee. That's so simple, but really well put. All right. Well, what about the millennials then? What can they do to meet us halfway along the bridge? Yeah, which is um, my book, which you have read, right? Um, you yes. know, it's built for it to be read by both millennials. Well, it's both for everyone. built to be read by the whole teams, right? Both sides, because not one side can carry this ball. And I think that sometimes that's really the problem with business books is that, you know, management goes off and reads something and then comes back with all new ideas. And the other people are going, what the hell just happened to the vocabulary? So the millennial, I think, has to can do many things. One is can say, can wait their turn in terms of I would like to talk to the CEO after I have 30 days under my belt or I want to talk to that manager after I have 30 days under my belt. So I have something, you know, a contextual to say, number one. Number two is to say is not to just dive in and try to fix everything day one. You're going to see so many ways you can make a difference. Oh, my goodness, you are right. But just to take a moment and then you know, do something their way and then come back. I have some ideas on how we can streamline. The third piece is I always ask everybody to find a mentor within the organization as soon as you can. And a mentor who's at least five, six, seven years older than you, because that uh, frame of reference, particularly, you know, five, six, seven years is a long time right now. It didn't used to be so seven years didn't used to be a long time. It is a long time today. And then with that mentor and mentee to exchange reading lists, so what are the things I read every day? What are the things you read every day? And if we can just exchange reading lists, you get an idea of how people are informed. Jeez, that's a great idea. Because we all are, you know, in, there are different news services or yep. feeds that each generation, you know, gets on and that they like, right? Yep. And if you could just exchange the sources just for a month, you're going to have yeah. a different point of view. Like, oh my gosh, who knew these things, right? And yeah. you see this and there's just a lot more informing each other that can happen. That's a great piece of advice, Lee. I love that one. Right. Those three things for a millennial. And then the last piece is to ask questions, to, you know, come with a set of questions like, how are documents, you know, so I, I say I have to give you a draft. What does that look like? How do you want it? <laughs> to ask those questions so you know what format people want. Or to say things like, how does, and th- how do things get approved here? Because you may not be able to see all the interdependencies. So if you ask a lot of questions, sort of those unspoken rules that are in a culture, if they're not told to you, you'll never know. You'll have to yeah. assimilate them. But if you go in and ask, a, like, what are the things people don't tell you? So in my company, right, I hate olives. So <laughs> I never made this a big deal in my company. And one day, my prior assistant had a meeting, was having lunch with uh, lots of people in the company. And they're like, tell me something about Lee that you know, we don't know. And he said, she hates olives. Well, from then on, every time we order pizza for the company, there are no, I hear, (laughs) make sure there's no olives in that pizza. I'm like, well. The queen doesn't like olives. Right. It's crazy. But I'm not going (laughs) to eat a slice of pizza from every pizza we get for 40 people. But still, they don't want to order olives just in case I want that pizza. So. Well, that's a nod to your, the respect they have for you. It is amazing, right? But. Those are, there are lots of unwritten rules in every culture. So ask the question, what are the things that I should know, right? Because you know, people aren't going to remember to tell you the whole thing. Hey, that, uh, the, some of those pieces of advice you just gave are, are so simple, no offense intended, but they're just so clever and, uh, and really practical. I love them. 
I just want to spend one minute on this special position that exes could find themselves in for the next mm-hmm. few years, that bridging position. They can either sit there and be bitter that they're being squeezed out by the new generation and the generation who won't leave, or they can see themselves as this very important, almost boutique generation, a small mm-hmm. generation in between the two extremes of the boomers and the wise. Mm-hmm. I, I guess they share some of their same characteristics of each. They can they can mm-hmm. relate to each of those generations yes. better than the, those generations can relate to each other. Mm-hmm. What can exes do to seize the moment? I think from an extra perspective, it is to understand two things. One is, you know, boomers are now starting to, you know, they're just how the bell curve works on boomers. You know, there's a bunch, right? You know, the biggest bell curve is 56 to 62, somewhere in there, you know, so they're going to be in the workplace for a little longer, right? Sure. And, but at the same time, and some of them aren't going to make it. A lot of boomers are not going to make it in corporate America or corporate Australia just because of the cost involved. So one is be ready, right? What can you do now to make sure you're ready to lead in the future? How can you make sure you're relevant? And relevance is the most important thing for boomers and Xers in terms of leadership. Are you on Twitter? Are you, do you know what Instagram and Snapchat are? A lot of people don't, right? You know, are you relevant? Are you listening to podcasts? Are you listening to all those kinds? Truly, right? What makes you relevant? And for me, what makes you relevant is not, it's not all about experience. It's about assimilation in terms of how communication is happening. So can you communicate with lots of people, right? Number one. The other piece of that for experts is you just got to know that there aren't going to, the number of management and leadership positions that exist in corporations, there are too many of them for experts to fill. So you will have colleagues who at your same level will be millennials. So just know that now because there just aren't enough of you to fill what is currently in the hierarchy. So get comfortable with that idea. Get comfortable with the idea that your peers are going to be younger than you. Right. Because it just doesn't, you know, there aren't enough. There aren't enough of you to be leading uh, the companies that exist today. That's great advice. Now, my last question, because I know that you have to go, what's the next generation going to be called? And what are their characteristics? Well, so... There's a lot of uh, jockeying right now among uh, marketing firms about that. But my friend Tom Kapalopoulos wrote a book called Gen Z. Yep. And Gen Z is going to be larger than uh, millennials all, all around right. the world. Right. Just because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, right? People are, the health in Africa, what's going on in China. I mean, all around the world, they're going to be more Gen Zs than anything else. And they're going to really have a lot in common with the youngest millennials today, 16 to 22 year olds, in terms of access, ability, flexibility, so flexible and entrepreneurial in, you know, the youngest millennials believe they can lead from any position. They don't have to be at the front to lead. They can lead from any seat in the boat. And uh, Gen Z is going to have the same kind of dynamic. So really learning how to work when command and control is useful, which is going to be less and less and less as a leadership style and how matrix management will work. Fantastic. Lee Carraher, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got to go. It's a fascinating topic and I really have learned a lot talking to you about it today. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it was helpful. Thank you. That was Lee Carraher. She's got some personality so alive, personable, and curious. As you may have guessed through the chat, I really enjoyed talking about the characteristics of society that defined each generation, and then linking them to observable behaviours in the workplace. The boomers, post-war kids, part of a numerically huge generation. They expect to line up for things, to wait their turn, and then to be shown the respect the org chart suggests they should have. And then there's the X's, the first generation to largely have two working parents. They were the latchkey kids. So into the workplace, they took fierce independence, the ability to work alone, to be self-motivated. And then, of course, there's the millennials. Perhaps an unfairly broad group. There's so much difference between being born in 1980 and, say, 1992. 
but part of the same generation they are and will continue to define them by the effect on their character that ubiquitous technology has had. They expect the world to be flat, no hierarchy. They have ideas, access to information, to connections all around the world, and they want to use them. I love Lee's pieces of advice to the millennials on how to get on in the workplace. And equally, I loved her advice to the X's and the boomers on how to get the most out of the unique ability of the millennials without the frustration and misunderstanding that currently exists within so many workplaces. I'll share those pieces of advice in the lessons learned page for this podcast. I'll also point you in the direction of Lee's book, Millennials and Management. You'll find it all on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or by emailing david at teams.guru. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'll be back next week for another episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.